0: Startup Stories DSM features conversations with entrepreneurs who share their stories of what worked and what failed on their entrepreneurial journey. Startup Stories is produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. More tips and resources are available at dsmpartnership.com slash business resources. I'm your host, Mike Caldwell, Executive Director of Entrepreneurial Initiatives at The Partnership. Kaylee Williams, welcome to Startup Stories. You emceed Accelerate DSM event last year, and you started with a rap, when did you learn how to rap? Do you perform live?
1: <laughs> I do. Uh, and thank you for having me today, Mike. It's great to be here. Uh, I did rap. I developed my alter ego, whom I playfully dubbed Little Skittle,
0: Little uh,
1: back in my senior year of college. Nice. So for my creative writing capstone, I actually performed a spoken word uh, rap to about 200 creative writing students and English students. And uh, oh, it Wow. Was a, how did that go? It was great. It was a very business casual event. And uh, I went up there, and I pulled my hair into a side ponytail, and I put on about six sweatbands. And I had someone in the back who dropped a beat for me, and then I performed in front of everyone.
0: (laughs) Classic. So I also, I I believe you do stand-up comedy as well?
1: Uh, I do. Not anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Didn't go too well. So I think uh, anyone in the tech community can probably relate to the concept of beta testing. I like to think that I beta-tested my comedy career... When I worked as a waitress at Court Avenue Brewing Company downtown. All right. Um, I tried all types of jokes on an interchangeable audience of families, uh, bachelorette parties, foreign businessmen. You were
0: doing this to your customers.
1: I was. And really? they couldn't go anywhere because I was their waitress. Oh, you,
0: those poor people. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. You know what?
1: That's how you learn. And after discovering that my AB audience segmentation and my content changes were not effective, I decided to keep the comedy just to internal emails.
0: I can tell you're in the startup world because you have all the lingo now about (laughs) A-B testing. and Dropping all the buzzwords. You are. You're dropping them. So you were doing it before you knew what those meant. Mm -hmm. You grew up in my hometown, Cedar Falls. What was your childhood like for you?
1: You know, I like to think that I had a pretty all-American childhood. I played many sports. um, I performed in the school play. My parents encouraged myself and my siblings to stay actively involved in music through band and choir. Um and we also volunteered a lot and I think that many of those early life experiences uh really stoked the fire that led to my work in passion today.
0: Nice. So um I went to Cedar Falls High School, is that where you went as well?
1: No, actually my education was somewhat unique in that I was fortunate to attend the labs the lab school, Price uh, Lab Price School. Price Lab, sure. Yep. It was a K through twelve teacher training uh, school, which meant that most of my classes were taught by university professors, shadowed um. by college students. Um, and then because of the lab school unique relationship with the University of Northern Iowa, I was able to take college courses when I was 16. So by the time I had graduated from high school, I had earned 18 hours of college credit. Nice. That's
0: mm-hmm. kind of like what they do with DMAC here today. My son went to Ankeny High School, and you could get up to like thirty hours of credit yep. through DMAC if you worked at it mm-hmm. before you graduated from high school. Yep. So yeah, Price Lab. The, the thing about Price Lab was this, this classes were really small. This isn't like Cedar Falls High for me. It was like a graduating class of four fifty. Mm-hmm. What was your graduating class?
1: Forty two. Forty
0: two. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's so much better because you get to know everybody. And I you loved can it. Mix. Nice. Did you always want to be an entrepreneur?
1: You know, it's funny. Um, I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur, but I think that my love for entrepreneurship showed itself pretty early. My first business was a dog walking enterprise that I started when I was 14 years old. My parents gave me a little seed money to put an ad in the newspaper, and I charged, I think, $10 per dog for a 30-minute walk. Um, After paying them back, of course, I started to make a pretty good profit, especially when I got really good at walking more than one dog at Ah, a time. Ah,
0: you got some leverage in your business model. Correct. Here we go with the lingo again.
1: I will tell you a funny story, however. Um, I was actually walking four dogs at once when one of them did get off of the leash and started to run away. Sweet little Molly, a Boston Terrier. I will never forget the pure panic that set in. I took all the other leashes and I wrapped them around my wrist and I sprinted after Molly who just was gleeful and tasting the sweet, sweet joy of freedom. I jumped on top of her leash. I still have the scars on my knees to prove it. Got her back. Um, and I like to think that that was kind of my first lesson in customer uh, support.
0: <laughs> well, that's a good customer support story. I'm sorry to hear you have permanent scars from it's
1: it. It's all good. Um, oh, wow. I also, so later that year, that that was like early. So I was 14, freshman year of high school. My sophomore year of high school, I started the high school newspaper, and we called it the Panther Press. Um, the crowning achievement of that. Particular entrepreneurial adventure, uh, in my opinion, is the freshman spotlight. So I noticed that there was a really big gap or divide between the upperclassmen and the lowerclassmen, and I wanted to try and bridge that somehow. So we created this get to know a freshman section oh, where nice. every week we would interview a different freshman every and talk about. every week you yep, ran a weekly newspaper. That's right. And we had a lot of students that were really interested in submitting articles, and so I managed. 10 to 15 students any given semester who wanted to write for the Panther Press, and I like to think that that was my first lesson in employee management.
0: Yeah, but it was. Did that live on beyond you then? Did it continue after you left school? I don't know. Oh, interesting. That's
1: a good question. Yeah,
0: I just was curious if it lived on beyond. So this is really interesting, because for a lot of people that say, I'm not an entrepreneur, I think a lot of them are. They just don't use the word, and they maybe they don't do business. Maybe it's not... I'm going to go out and make a bunch of money. Because actually, most great entrepreneurs didn't go after it to make money. They went after it to solve a problem. Correct. Like you saying, I want the freshman to be known in the, in the school. So That's right. So you have a degree in English and economics. Mm-hmm. I, that's kind of an interesting mix. Why those two areas?
1: Great question. Well, I'll start with my first true love, which was uh, English. Writing has always been a passion of mine, and I believe very strongly that learning to read well and write well can serve you well in any career.
0: It's absolutely true.
1: So I um, absolutely jumped in uh, with English when I got to college, especially because all of my credits, those 18 college credits that I had earned in high school, they were all in English classes. So when I got Mm -hmm. to Iowa, I started with level two courses in English, and I loved the challenge of it. I couldn't absorb enough of the literature that we were reading. Um, and then I'll talk about economics. So this one really kind of stumbled into my life and set me on fire. And I mean that in a good way. I never would have taken an economics class, but I did it as one of the required electives at the University of Iowa. Um, my professor was John Solo. In our very first lecture, he asked a girl in the front row if she would like a marshmallow. And she was kind of surprised and she said, yes, I would love a marshmallow. And uh so he gave her one and then he asked her if she would like another marshmallow and then a third one and a fourth one. And as she kept eating these marshmallows, he would ask her to rank her utility or satisfaction with each marshmallow. And he would graph it. And so in the lecture hall we had this big graph of marshmallows on one axis and then utility on the other, and of course you could see the dramatic decline to the point where she was outright refusing any more marshmallows and he was trying to force her to eat more of them.
0: That's a brilliant way to explain it. That's how that.
1: yep we learned the that. law of diminishing returns. Yeah. So economics became something that I was really passionate about and I wouldn't have even known it.
0: Yeah, it's a great marketing story too because it's like so many things if you fall in love with it early, you'll get through the tough times. Exactly. I had a similar experience my I was having a very tough go of it my freshman year in college. I was failing out actually. And my brother who'd gotten a comp sci degree said go take a computer science course, you might like it. And I'll never forget uh, the teacher because he got up and he the first day he got out his kids building blocks. And they're wooden blocks. And he explained how the memory model in the computer worked with brightly colored building blocks. And I was that was it. I was done. Uh, and it was just an amazing experience. Cool. Going back to your communications background, it is interesting. In these days, I get a lot of communications from entrepreneurs reaching out saying, hey, can you help me? Can mm-hmm. you answer this question? And I'm amazed at how many of them now write in text message format. And literally, they'll send me a note that says, can I meet with you? And I'll reply, this is on email, yes. What would you like to meet about? (laughs) Uh, Business plan. And you have this like chatter going back and forth. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, how are these people going to get hired to work in the business world where you actually have to complete a sentence? And I don't want to sound like the the cranky old guy because I am not good with the English language. I'm really not. It was not my strong suit. But it's it's sad to see the impact where social media being their dominant format of tweeting or whatever it is they're doing Mm -hmm. suddenly becomes the way they interact. And I think about writing letters to customers, even corresponding via email and as mm-hmm. product support or reaching out to someone to sell something. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. This the, the language part of it is so important.
1: Absolutely. And I will tell you, Mike, that many of the things that I've gotten in my life started with a cold email, a very well-written cold email.
0: You know, and if you do it right, it'll, especially here in the Midwest, you can open so many doors. Mm-hmm. People will say, sure, come on in. Mm-hmm. I, it's something when I got back from Seattle and I was in this job brand new, I didn't know anybody in Des Moines. Literally, and I had to go out and network with the entire business community. I couldn't believe how many doors went open just because I sent them a a somewhat personalized note. We were talking about this the other night in Raising Capital, the uh, monetary event that Ben Mone put on. They had a bunch of VCs up there, and they said, you know, just when you send us a note – At least say hi by name, at least, you know, maybe read our bio and give us something we can relate to. Mm -hmm. Don't just cold email me with a thousand other BCs because I'm not going to (laughs) respond to that. Right, right. Make it direct,
1: make it personal. And we talk about storytelling a lot too. Um, I was recently chatting with some of the teams from the Global Insurance Accelerator about learning to pitch your company and learning to tell your story. And I think uh, writing well is important, speaking well, um, being confident, and knowing how to relay a thought or a point or a concept in a way that people can understand is so critically important to your success.
0: And here in the Midwest, even more being genuine, Mm -hmm. you know, we can, it's funny that people around here have such a nose for falseness. It's true. And you've been through a lot of these pitch competitions and things where somebody, they go from one type of person to another. It's like, they turn something on and Uh it's like, Oh, that's so bad. It's such a turnoff. And yet they think they're doing the right thing, but just being yourself and being genuine, people are pretty cool with it. Mm -hmm. What brought you to Des Moines? my startup your startup
1: yep I um when I graduated from college in Iowa City, I thought I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to write about startup companies um. I reached out to Silicon Prairie News, which was an, a blog at the time that covered startups in the Midwest. And I asked them for a job. And, of course, they said, we don't have anything available right now, but we'll let you know if something pops up.
0: Well, they were a startup. They didn't have a lot of money that's either. That's right.
1: That's right. And um, I kind of thought, all right, no worries. I'll, I'll keep looking. But wouldn't you know it, about a week later, I heard back from them. And they let me know that there was a company in Des Moines called Volunteer Local. And the person who had started it, of course, was Brian Hemisath and he was looking for an intern. So I applied for that internship and I got it. And I worked 10 hours a week from Iowa City remotely. um, And I fell in love with the product and the concept. And when Brian offered me a full-time role, I bought a car, got a cat, and I moved to Des Moines, Iowa. And I lived in my very first lofted apartment downtown.
0: You bought a car. Got a cat and drove to Des Moines. <laughs> I love it. I'm a cat person, so of course I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a passion for volunteering, but where'd that come from?
1: You know, um, I think that my passion for volunteering can be traced back to a very defining experience that I had growing up. I'm sure you remember, Mike, the floods of 2008. I do. I went home to Cedar Falls, and uh, my family joined the throngs of residents who were taking school buses from the Unidome downtown to Sandbag in four-hour shifts. And I'll never forget the experience. We were shoveling alongside professors, football players, um, students, elementary school students, and then, of course, people who just lived in Cedar Falls, lawyers and doctors and people who own the shops downtown. And we were all working together to save our town
0: it's amazing. A crisis brings out the best in people. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I, as you know, were recently in Hawaii, and it was during the missile crisis, yeah. you know, it, just in early January when there was a, a unfortunately a invalid alert that said a ballistic missile attack is coming. Mm-hmm. And we were in this beautiful hotel. It was the Grand Hyatt on Kauai. And it was full of all these uh, doctors that were there for a conference. And to be polite about it, many of their partners, spouses were – um Not the nicest people in the world when you engage them in the hotel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were being rather nasty to the help and all this. And so when this event happened, they had us all go down to the lowest level of the hotel. And we were basically down in the service areas inside these basically cement hallways. which probably the safest place they had because yeah. nobody really knew what was going on. It was a right. pretty interesting experience. But suddenly these people that I had seen earlier being really not very nice at all were turning into grandmas and grandpas helping – the parents that had little kids that were crying and, you know, just turned in the nicest people in the world. Mm -hmm. And it was like, wow, why did it take a missile alert to bring that out? Right. But But it is amazing. So what is volunteer local and what problem does it solve?
1: Volunteer local is a volunteer scheduling and registration platform. We solve the problem of getting volunteers signed up into jobs and shifts that match their skills, their interests, and their availability.
0: So, like so many things, that sounds so simple on the surface. <laughs> and- my wife uh, volunteers sometimes here in the city and she volunteered at the Arts Fest last mm-hmm. year. And you know the Arts Fest people pretty well. Yep. How, how many volunteers does the Arts Fest have, as an example?
1: Uh, at this point, over 500.
0: 500. And they do fun things like not showing up, swapping shifts. Yep. Um, find out somebody can't do it because they don't have the physical capabilities. Mm-hmm. So talk a little deeper about the, the kinds of challenges that the person in charge, there's somebody in charge of the volunteers at all these things. Yep. What are their challenges?
1: I It's a tremendous task. Uh, When you think about managing 500, 1,000, many thousands of volunteers for any type of event, you do have to accommodate for the fact that you're going to have a no-show rate, and we typically see about 20% no-show. So we recommend overfill by about 20%. Um, we do see volunteers that want to work together. So there are complexities involved in, uh, husband and wife duos. Oh, families. sure, of course. That yep. makes
0: perfect sense. Yep.
1: There are, um, some complexities in terms of what types of roles volunteers are qualified to do. For example, if you have beer tents that are collecting tips for donations, um, you cannot have anyone under 21 even, you know, remotely close to working inside those beer right. tents and handling the alcohol. So we've built a system that accommodates for all of these logistical uh, what would really be snafus or difficulties for a volunteer coordinator to make their lives incredibly easy.
0: Beyond snafu, it could be illegal and cause massive liability in some cases if you have the wrong people in the wrong position.
1: Correct. And we incorporate a waiver as well. So we are making sure that our customers are protected in every way that we can.
0: Yeah. And so give me an idea. What's the largest volunteer pool of any of your customers?
1: Oh, um, I would say the Sydney Gay and lesbian Mardi Gras in Australia. It's yeah. the largest LGBTQ event in the world. Really? They recruit over three thousand volunteers.
0: Three thousand volunteers. That's right. Over how many days? Three. Three days, Mm -hmm. 3,000 volunteers alone. I I can't even imagine the logistics of handling that.
1: Yeah, people travel from all over the world to be at this event and to volunteer for the event. So we work with them to make sure that they can recruit volunteers who maybe don't speak English or when they need to ask specific things about where you're going to be, where you're going to stay when you're here. Um, You know, we've worked with them to make sure that those volunteers. So let me guess, you're starting
0: to deal with multilingual issues. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the, I mean, uh, to me, I'm fascinated by uh, culture and people from different areas. But it's interesting. Here in Des Moines, we have over 100 languages spoken. And you wouldn't think that. But it's like, oh, it's Des Moines, Iowa, 100 languages. We have schools that will have 30 languages in one school. Mm -hmm. So it's becoming a real, and it's a business problem that needs to be solved, which means somebody's willing to pay for it. Right. So I always look at those kinds of things and say, wow, there's money to be made. Yeah, and and make people happy while you're at it. Oh yeah, tell me about a couple of your customers that really impress you.
1: You know, my experience at Volunteer Local has allowed me to work with organizations of all types, all over the world. We're with the United States Marine Corps. Um, We work with triathlons. We work with festivals, Bonnaroo Music and Arts Festival, and then as you would probably imagine. Tons of nonprofits um, that use volunteer local to manage their volunteers, you know, for the events that they produce throughout the year. Um, A couple of our customers come to mind. The first one, we recently signed a deal with Ironman and i have been incredibly impressed by their execution organizational leadership and their national presence any ironman event will draw between 500 to 1000 volunteers and these are not your easy going beer pouring no, opportunities no these are
0: some pretty intense human beings
1: these are people who show up at 4 in the morning to manage parking in an empty field right. or Work the medical tent to, um, you know, assess and sometimes diagnose injured athletes.
0: Yeah, they push themselves to the edges.
1: Yep. Um, another customer that did come top of mind: uh, the National Cherry Blossom Festival in Washington, D.C. uses Volunteer Local.
0: That'd be coming up pretty soon too, wouldn't yep. it? Yep.
1: Yep. Um, uh, in just a few weeks here. Yeah. Um, I'm really impressed by them, mostly because of the breadth of events that they produce. So the Cherry Blossom team choreographs a parade a multi-stage music festival, food vendors, a f- kite-flying competition, <laughs> and a fireworks show that they call Palooza at the culmination of the event. Palooza,
0: I love mm-hmm. it. I love it. How interesting. So you started as an intern. Uh, what was that like? What was the, I mean, you had this transition from school to being an intern. Because you were coming out of school. I mean, you'd finished, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So what was that like?
1: In many ways, my internship felt a lot like school. Really? Yes. Uh, my job early on was mostly validation, which meant doing a lot of research. So I was tasked with determining the scope of the problem that we solved, the existing competitors in the industry, and then how our product differentiated from their solutions. Um, I eventually phased into actually calling our customers and asking them what they liked about Volunteer Local, and then very shyly saying things like, would you be comfortable telling us what we could do to improve our product?
0: <laughs> oh, I can't imagine you being shy, Kaylee. A
1: little bit, a little yeah, bit.
0: Well, it's always hard getting up. So you've moved a, a little ways beyond uh, uh, being an intern. Your title today is president of the company.
1: Mm-hmm. That's
0: right. So Brian, uh, for those of you who don't know, Brian Hemisath, Brian uh, took a, another job mm-hmm. uh, and uh, is doing his own thing with a global insurance accelerator and so on. So you're really running the company. Yep. How many employees do you have now?
1: Uh, we have three full-time employees today. We're hiring a fourth in April and a fifth before the end of the year.
0: Right. And your revenues are growing. Can you, on a percentage basis, give us some kind of idea? How's it, how's it doing?
1: Sure. Uh, 20 to 70% every year revenue growth.
0: 20 to 70% a year. Wow. Mm -hmm. I suppose getting big events like Ironman add to that pretty quick.
1: It helps. It definitely helps.
0: (laughs) So you and I have seen a lot of pitches and a lot of entrepreneurial pitch competitions and events. Um, You and Brian went to Iowa City and pitched uh, a a pitch competition and Mm -hmm. won the event. Tell us about that. We
1: did. We won Pitch and Grow back in 2013. Um, I loved the experience. It was a lot of fun. Uh, back then, I was just our community builder at Volunteer Local. Was that your
0: first big pitch like that? It was. Oh, so wow, you won on your first outing.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, okay. it was very, um, it was a whirlwind. So uh, pitching our company, and I will tell you this, pitching our company to a room filled with um, other smarter business professionals felt like the scariest prospect of all time. Um, but you know, Mike, like most things in life, I think what you fear the most becomes the most valuable at the end of the day. Um, And the competition, it was a little bit like March Madness. So all the teams were put into a bracket. And when Brian and I got there, we actually pitched two times. And by the second time we pitched, we were pitching to a room filled, of course, with the judges, but also the other teams that we had beat. Oh, wow. So it was very nerve-wracking. Yeah. Um, And I will tell you, uh, someone actually recorded this, and it's still on YouTube. Really? And I'm glad that they did, because when I went back and watched the recording, um, when I start to speak, I'm very nervous. You can hear my voice shaking. And there's a moment where I look at Brian and he kind of gives me a nod and we're both pitching together. He gives me a nod and it's like my posture improves and my voice, you know, it strengthens and I, um, I become a little bit more loose and comfortable and confident and relaxed. And I think one of my major takeaways from that experience was the importance of having incredible mentors that really challenge you in the right ways.
0: Yeah, and support you too. Yep. Uh, it's it's uh, it's interesting when you see these pitches the best ones are from the heart. Yeah. They're not they usually don't have fancy slides. <laughs> you know, they're not full of beautiful graphics and I always get one of my pet peeves is when they use all the animation in PowerPoint or whatever yeah, they're using, yeah. Keynote. People used to use this tool called Prezi, and I don't see it around much anymore, where the mm-hmm. stuff would fly in from... It was the most distracting thing in the world. <laughs> it's like, well, why are you making me look at the screen and all the stuff flying around and being cool when I'm supposed to be listening to what you're saying? Right. Because the slides are there just to support you. Right. So it, it's kind of cool. So when you became president of uh, a, a Volunteer Local, what did that mean to you?
1: You know, it meant everything to me, but it also meant really nothing. Because as it with many startups, um, the title doesn't always reflect what you do. And so before I was the president, I was the director of business development, but I was, for all intents and purposes, the president of the company. Um, I was running the company, but I was also closing as many deals as I could to scale the company. And that's still what I do today. And um, you
0: were, I think, a, you guys were like a one-person company at that point too, weren't you? So you were kind of like... You're the president, but you also have to take out the trash kind of thing. Yeah, right. right. You, oh, you're exactly. You're still doing everything. And even Here's-
1: today, rolling up my sleeves and getting on yeah. the phone and giving a demo or answering a very you know, easy support call, I'll do that any day of the week, and I'll continue to do that as we grow. Well,
0: and you find out that's a great way to be a leader, because when the leaders jump in and take the worst job, mm-hmm. uh, that's just a, such a sign of true leadership. There's a new restaurant in town called St. Kilda, and the gentleman that runs this, his name is Alex. He's originally from, I believe he's... Born London, grew up in Sydney or something like that, and then came to the States. And when you, and he's a consummate restaurateur, he talks to everyone, he greets people, he knows everybody's name. But you watch him and he's picking up a piece of trash off the ground. He grabs the bottle and cleans the front window because it's got a smudge on it from a customer. Mm-hmm. He's bussing tables. He's helping his wait staff. He's like following them with extra plates. And you know, it's kind of that leading from, from behind. You're know, yes. being a support leader. Absolutely. And I think that's just, brilliant to watch people like that it's just so refreshing yeah Yeah.
1: and i will tell you it it felt right to me as you know mike i've been doing this for six years and so has it it been six years it has wow so the the progression from my role to intern to community builder to director of business development and now president has felt intuitive um it's felt appropriate and I think uh, the best affirmation for me when we announced my title change was actually the response of our customers. I received a lot of emails and phone calls from them. Just congrats, you know, we feel like this is a really exciting thing for you. We love working with you. And by the way, can we still call you if we have questions? Right, right.
0: Are you too important to take our call now? <laughs> yeah, right, no. of course,
1: to which the answer was always no, please call anytime yeah, please you need. Please call. But um, yeah, I, I think it felt right. It felt intuitive. And it has helped me to get on the phone with companies like Iron Man.
0: Oh, yeah. Titles do matter in that sense. It, they there, do. They're a paradox because you can get kind of some silly titles out there, too. I was laughing the other day because there's this – i, I, I mean, I've gotten to the point where I hate C-level titles. I just hate them because some mm-hmm. of them are so obnoxious and ridiculous. I was looking at a company. In fact, it was uh, – I don't remember which one of the box companies that send you a box every month. They have a chief chief algorithm officer. And I'm like, oh, please. <laughs> You know what's next? Chief Chief uh, Software uh, Implementation Officer. I mean, everybody's got a C level title, so yes. sometimes just titles like Founder, President, VP of Marketing, VP of Sales are the best titles because mm-hmm. they're operational titles. The the CEO thing for most people is, you know, some person that sits sixty stories up and is paid way too much money and doesn't really do anything. Right? Mm-hmm. That's it's just not what it is. You've been involved in the entrepreneurial ecosystem for some time. I'd love to hear your opinion. How do we get more women engaged in starting their own businesses, small or large?
1: Um, My answer to this, and I'll start by saying this, um, I love the question. And I think it's a complex question that doesn't have a simple solution. I think it has a complex solution. But I have a few ideas, of course. Um, First, visibility. There are more women in tech today than ever before. And yet the most visible entrepreneurs in our culture are men. Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, Tim Cook, the list goes on. How many female entrepreneurs can you name without having to Google it? How many have you met in your life? How many can you name in the Midwest, in Iowa specifically? Yeah, I've, I
0: got you on that one because I know most of them. Yeah, so you I probably, probably do, I probably can do it, but yeah, most um, can't.
1: For all of you listening, um, I believe that we will see more women and girls engaging in entrepreneurship if we simply start by increasing the visibility of those who have already done it or are doing it today. The solution then, in my opinion, is more frequent and more meaningful opportunities for women to be seen in their roles as entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs of tech startups. And I think this could include press, fireside chats, funding, speaking opportunities, and even podcasts.
0: Yeah, I I agree with all of that. I think that, to me, a lot of it also comes from early education, just um, you know, it's it's an interesting paradox that the vast majority of the primary and secondary teachers in the United States are women, mm-hmm. and they actually and I'm not this is not a call out it's just a it's just a, a point of attention. They're the ones that can have the greatest impact because by changing the way they teach or using the examples to your point, let's talk about famous business women. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can think of a few that are very, very famous uh, and calling them out in the class versus using Steve Jobs and Bill Gates mm-hmm. um, They have that at their at their disposal. I hope they understand the opportunity they have there because it is a woman dominated field and to its benefit by the way, uh, and that option's there, so I think there's some things we can do. You know how this is with the complex problems. There are sometimes complex solutions, and sometimes there's pretty straightforward ones that we just don't see. Mm-hmm. You ever had that happen where after you finally discover it's like, that was so easy <laughs> mm-hmm. once I figured out how to do it. Oh, it's yeah. just amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I am very um, inspired by, and I think I feel very hopeful when I look at a lot of the young programming that's happening right now to target elementary-age and middle-school, high-school-aged uh, girls who are interested in tech or entrepreneurship um I know there's the big program in uh, Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, mm-hmm. and that was created, I believe, in conjunction with um the co-work there.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. They're pretty, pretty heavily involved. Yeah, exactly.
1: I will say, though, and I think this this bears um, putting on the air, that I believe inclusion should be a priority for all businesses, and this is oh, something absolutely. that I feel very passionate about myself as I grow Volunteer Local. Um I think there just isn't enough diversity, and more importantly, I don't think there's enough uh, equity and equality in tech. So, um, much like our more established counterparts in business, I think startups also have an obligation to proactively address this delta. Um, and I think that means consciously diversifying the applicant pool when we're hiring or creating feedback loops for upper and top level management so that employees can safely and maybe even anonymously point out discrimination whenever it happens. And then learning to elevate in talent, talent internally without prejudice.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because as a man, I'm a 57-year-old male, and the Me Too movement is scaring a lot of my peer group. And it's unfortunate because um, there are some really, really bad actors out there, but there's also a lot of men that just don't know what they're doing. And if they were, if it was just explained to them, many of them would stop. Um, I had those moments in my early you know, career when somebody would say, look, do you know what you're doing there? And it's like, oh, my gosh, no, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know it. I was raised by... My mom and my dad, and my dad had his influences on me, and I Mm -hmm. probably picked them up from my peer groups. And so I, you know, I hope that what comes out of the Me Too movement not only get rid of the real predators they need to go away, but also just help the rest of them understand. And sometimes it's, it's not just guys. I mean, it's the, it's racial, it's, it's, you know, cultural, um, and I just hope that more and more people can have that safe zone that says, hey, we just want to tell you this, that what you're doing while innocent in your eyes mm-hmm. isn't being perceived that way. So, Absolutely.
1: I yeah. think we're all intrinsically biased in some way. Of course way. we are. And <laughs>
0: of course creating, we
1: are. creating those feedback loops is so critical. Yeah. However, it, it doesn't have to even be fancy. It can just be a, a literally a, a shoe box that maybe you put in your front desk where you can just drop a note if you feel like there's something that's been happening. But taking that feedback and then making it actionable, I think is the mark of a a great leader.
0: Yeah. And and it's going to say it's going to come down to the leaders of the businesses that do it. And we're seeing some of them here in Des Moines that are very good at that. Mm -hmm. Kelly Williams, thanks for joining me on Startup Stories.
1: Well, thank you for having me today, Mike.
0: Thanks for listening to the Startup Stories DSM podcast. Inspired by this startup story? Visit dsmpartnership.com slash business resources to find upcoming events, videos, and other free resources dedicated to helping startups and entrepreneurs accelerate success in DSM USA. That's dsmpartnership.com slash business resources. Thanks for listening.